Uh, there is, there are, there are so many things I could recommend to you. Again, uh, if you want to go on YouTube and watch some good videos on understanding Islam, Dr. James uh, White is a Reformed Baptist pastor in Phoenix, Arizona, and also a professor. And on YouTube, you could type in Dr. James White, uh, Islam A to Z. Is that too loud now? Am I too loud? No? Okay. Anyway, Islam A to Z, part one and part two. I think probably each one is hour and a half, two hours long. Uh, but he leads an apologetics group out of Phoenix, Arizona, defending the faith, and uh, covers a lot of cults and debates, and he actually debates with Muslims and so forth. So if you want to watch some good videos, um, that would be two that I would recommend. Dr. James White, Islam A to Z, Islam A to Z on um, uh, YouTube. Uh, tonight, as you'll see from the very first part of the notes I've given you this evening, I, I've had to limit myself, and still I could keep you here three hours tonight, okay? Uh, but this was just so good and simple in breaking it down. Dr. J.D. Greer, he's one of our own. He pastors Summit Church up in uh, the Durham area. They have about nine campuses uh, he is one of our leading young pastors in Southern Baptist life, and uh, he's a Ph.D., lived in Islamic countries and lived with Muslim families. Uh, so we're going to be largely, in some ways, doing a book review of that book tonight, okay? Another excellent one, probably the overall most embracing one I would recommend to you, uh, Norman Geisler. Norman Geisler used to be the president of Southern Evangelical Seminary, connected with, it started out anyway, being connected with Calvary out on 51. It's a seminary that really has emphasized apologetics. Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler. And then uh, a Muslim fella that has, uh, now a Christian, that has co authored the book with him, Abdul Salib. Now, that is a fictitious name to protect his identity among Muslim people. And uh, that covers a wide range of theological matters in Islam. So I would recommend that. Uh, answering Islam. I'm sorry, good question. Answering Islam. The first one by J.D. Greer is Breaking the Islam Code. This one is Answering Islam. Uh, just a quick little pocket reference guide. It's quick, quick read. You know, it's only 120 pages. You can sit down in an hour's time and go through that book. And uh, it, you know, nothing in depth, but it does cover all the basics. Bruce and Stan's pocket guide to Islam, a user-friendly approach. A long-time standard uh, looking at cults, and as he says in here, Islam's not a cult. Uh, it's, it's one of the major world religions, but uh, with the increase of it today, the growth of it today, he does have a big section in this book, Dr. Walter Martin, The Kingdom of the Cults. 
whether you want to study Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, whatever, uh, Walt, Walter Martin's work has been a long time kind of a gold standard in, in studying cults. Uh, James Beverly, Nelson's Illustrated Guide to Religions. James Beverly, Nelson's Illustrated Guide uh, to Religions, has an excellent section in there uh, on Islam. Uh, just a quick little reference guide that's a chart. You may have seen these in Lifeway. Uh, these little rows uh, put out by Rose Publishing, Islam and Christianity. He's just got extensive list in here comparing the two. So if you just want a quick reference guide, uh, that would be something good to get. Uh, one thing that uh, more recent book somebody gave me, I forget who now, uh, the Camel Training Manual, Reaching uh, Muslims Building a Bridge Between Islam and Christianity Using the Quran, Using Verses Out of the Quran That uh, Point Muslims to the Bible and Point Muslims to Jesus. Uh, getting them to read some of their own surahs. Surahs are chapters in the Quran. S-U-R-A, sometimes spelled S-U-R-A-H. You, you see it both ways. 114 uh, surahs uh, in the Quran. The Quran in total is a little bit less in length than our entire New Testament. But... Uh, Surprisingly, there are a lot of verses in the Quran that point the Muslim to the Scripture and to talk to Christians and Jews if they want to know more, okay? And so he's going to talk about that in there. So that's just some of the things we will be looking at. Uh, this morning, I was handed this uh, from our state convention People's Next Door, Metro Charlotte. Top 10 unreached people groups in Metro Charlotte, and there's a listing of those. Top 10 unreached people groups in Metro Charlotte. Do you know six of these 10 groups? And if I read these 10 groups to you, I mean, you'd recognize some of the places they're from, but some of these places, you'd probably say, where's that? But uh, anyway, top ten, six of the top ten people groups that are moving in next door in Metro Charlotte are Muslim. Do you realize that? Fastest growing religion in America. And it's sad when we get into some of their doctrine to, to see that. Um, but anyway, so if you think this is a matter that doesn't apply to you or won't apply to you, think again. Uh, because if it doesn't now, uh, it will. Steve Patterson, where's he? Did I see Steve walk in here? Steve somewhere in here? Doctor, There he is right up front. Professor over at UNCC. Y'all have tons, tons of Muslim students. Uh, Susan Brooks, where's Su Susan? I bet y'all have a lot of them at uh, Cabarrus College of Health Sciences, okay? School teachers in here, business leaders. 
Again, if you don't think it affects you, it, it does or it will, okay? Let me read something to you before we begin. We've got miles to cover tonight. Sit back and relax and get comfortable, okay? I may have to, arb I may have to arbitrarily stop. I, had, I, I designed it to try to get done tonight. I don't know that I will. But anyway, uh, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. You know the passage. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our Muslim neighbors need to know Christ. They need to know Christ. First of all tonight, let's jump right in. What speaks to the Muslim? What speaks to the Muslim? When a Muslim tries to convert a Christian, what do they appeal to? Well, the first thing, according to J.D. Greer, who uh, again lived in a Muslim country and with a Muslim family for three years, he says they appeal to the beauty of the Quran. Again, as I mentioned last week, they will insist upon reading it in Arabic. And they, they, they want to read the Quran to you. Now, who in here has read some of the Quran? Okay. Uh, you know what I'm talking about when I sit, when I tell you it's, it's made up to us as we listen to it or read it to be a whole bunch of just random sayings with no historical context or narrative about it. If you're expecting to pick up the uh, Quran and find a narrative like you would find in the Bible, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, to you and me, it just sounds like a bunch of random things thrown in. Again, there's 114 surahs or chapters, and they're mixed up between the earlier writings and the later writings, and they're mixed up in no chronological order. Now, that's going to have significance later on tonight as we talk more about that. Now, the Muslim believes that the Quran, in its original Arabic, has a magical power about it. The power is in the hearing. And that's why if you're in a Muslim country and hear the blaring calls to prayer five times a day called the uh, uh, Azan, A-Z-Z-A-N, those blaring calls to prayer five times a day. Anybody heard those? Okay. They believe those calls have a twofold purpose. The obvious purpose would be to let you know it's time for prayer. But secondly, they believe that if anyone is not a Muslim yet, the call to prayer will have a magical power about it because it's reciting portions of the Quran. And so the more you hear it, the more they believe you'll be drawn to Islam because Allah will work almost magically through the sound of the azan, the call to prayer. Now, the Quran is the most treasured possession of the Muslim, and it's hard to overestimate the reverence they give to it. They'll store it up high. Uh, 
they might put it on top, way top shelf somewhere on top of a piece of furniture. They may even wrap it in a clean piece of cloth. By the way, they expect you to pay the same respect and reverence to the Bible. Okay? Uh, the UMA, U-M-M-A. Did I put that in your notes? Okay. That's the second thing that speaks to the Muslim. And they'll use this to try to convert you. <clears throat> the Ummah is the social community in the village. They'll treat you with incredible hospitality in some Muslim villages, and you can almost be like a rock star. They'll invite you to dinner and special gatherings. They'll give you the place of honor. It's all an attempt to convert you. Uh, in fact, J.D. mentions in his book that they made it very plain to him if he would only convert to Islam, they would immediately give him four of their choicest virgins in the village to be his wife, wives. Now, a third thing that moves the Muslim is what they believe are miraculous proofs of Islam. They've got all kinds of folk tales about miraculous events. They're very superstitious, and they believe in constant activity with angels and demons and jinn, J-I-N-N, uh, supernatural beings that can be good or bad, uh, and Allah himself. They'll say things like the marks on the palm of a human hand spell out in Arabic the number 99. And they claim that that is miraculous proof written in the nature of the 99 beautiful names of Allah. Greer says just about every village will have an imam who claims special communication at some point with supernatural beings. Now, as Greer points out, let's reverse all of these things and let's apply them to when Muslims convert to Christianity, if we know that what they want to use to try to convert us, it the same things reverse appeals to them. Uh, first would be exposure to the Bible. They frequently cite that reading the Bible itself was instrumental to their conversion to Christianity. Reading, just simply reading the Bible, getting them to read the Bible, they say is instrumental to their conversion, those who have converted. Muslims are intrigued by stories in the Bible. Do you remember from last week why? Hmm? And they, they name a lot of the characters out of the Bible, right? But they tend, a lot of these stories in the Bible, they'll have a different twist on it, or they won't have the complete story. And so when they read the complete story in the Bible about a biblical character, it kind of turns on light bulbs in their head. And, and, and it's very moving to them, they say oftentimes, again, from those who have converted to Christianity. Um, using their testimony, of course. Now, while the Muslim may be initially very opposed to Christian doctrine or evangelistic debates or conversations, 
they're very intrigued by the Bible itself. Again, remember, they place great respect for the uh, Torah, the Torah, the Zabur, the writings of David, the Psalms, the Angel, the Gospels, and then the Quran. That's what they accept as authoritative. Of course, they believe, as I pointed out last week, that the Quran supersedes all the others, but still they're very fascinated by the complete story in the Bible. And those who have converted may say that they began to question the inaccuracy and the falsehood of how the Quran dealt with the story. When they turn to the Bible and read how the Bible puts it, it creates some doubts in their minds about the Quran. Now, the Quran and the Hadith, or Hadith, the collection of sayings from Muhammad, uh, in the earlier writings, the earlier writings, will even instruct the Muslim to consult people of the book for further information. The Quran tells Muslims that Christians are their closest friends and, and that faithful followers of the Torah and Angel are of the one true religion. Now, in a moment, I'm going to deal with some of the contradictions to that in the Quran, but hang on, hang on to that. Uh, listen to uh, listen to a couple of particular surahs. Surah ten ninety four. If thou wert in doubt as to what we have revealed unto thee, then ask those who have been reading the book from before thee. Surah ten ninety four, referring to Christians and Jews. Strongest among men in enmity to the believers, Muslims, wilt thou find the Jews and pagans. And nearest among them in love to the believers wilt thou find those who say we are Christians. Because amongst these are men devoted to learning and men who have renounced the world and they are not arrogant. Surah 585. So plainly telling them that Seek out Christians. If only they, the people of the book, had stood fast by the law, the gospel, and all the revelation that was sent to them from their Lord, they would have enjoyed happiness from every side. There is from among them a party on the right course. And so again, even in the uh, surahs, particular ones that tell them to, to talk to a Christian, now, the Muslim believes that each prophet had a special mission and had something to say. For example, Noah was the prophet who proclaimed what? what? Divine judgment. Moses was who? The lawgiver. Jesus was the word. Muhammad is the seal or the final conclusion. Muhammad brought, they say, Muhammad brought all of the previous together into a more complete and final revelation, the Quran, according to their belief. However, again, they're open to learning more about each individual prophet's contribution. And so a Christian can use this fact in witnessing. 
I want you to listen to a story about Isha. Isha was an articulate and intelligent Muslim college student who lived next door to me in Southeast Asia. She loved to debate doctrine. One morning she approached me. I knew a debate was coming because she had that look in her eye. She asked, does the Bible teach you how to set up a fair and effective government? I inquired as to why she was asking. She replied, in our government class, we have learned that the reason non-Islamic countries are in such disarray is because Islam is the only uh, religion that uh, prescribes how a government is to be set up. I felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Christian political philosophy has always been an interest of mine. I was ready to explain how Christian political philosophy as derived from the Bible was superior to Islamic totalitarianism and to refute her claims that Islamic countries are uh, superior civilizations, but I did not. I simply told her that I was aware that the Quran did indeed give explicit instructions about how to set up a government and that quantitatively speaking, the Quran and Hadith said more about politics than, than did the Bible. This much is true. Knowing that she believed that each prophet had a special task from God, I told her that Jesus' special focus was the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If a person is afraid to die, I told her, Prophet Jesus said he could help her. Of course, I knew these were deep issues that she, like all Muslims, wrestled with, as will, it, as will be explained in the remainder of this book. I saw the fight leave her eyes. Really, she asked. Prophet Jesus can help me with that? Yes, I said, he has helped me. It's all in the angel, the gospel. Do you have a copy of the angel I could borrow, she asked. I think so, I said. I watched through her window as she sat re reading the New Testament that I gave her for the rest of the afternoon. If you were scoring points in a debate, I probably would not have come out the clear winner here. However, on my scorecard of witnessing encounters, this one goes down as a W. Probably the best way to evangelize a Muslim is simply get them reading the Bible, either with you or alone. Uh, don't initially, the scholars talk about, initially don't, don't try to just hammer point for point doctrine and debate. Get them reading the Bible. Listen to the story of Solomon. My Middle Eastern friend Solomon responded to a magazine ad for American pen pals. He was a young Islamic imam, and he intended through this opportunity to meet a Westerner he could convert to Islam. Ironically, the American with whom he was paired, Danny, had the intent of using this correspondence to convert a Muslim to Christianity. After two years of correspondence, Danny offered to come and visit Solomon. The two spent a month together in Solomon's home in the Middle East. Almost every night, Solomon told me, until late into the evening, uh, they ferociously argued doctrine. When it was time for Danny to return to the U.S., they had reached an impasse. Solomon defiantly thanked Danny for convincing him of nothing but to be a better Muslim. Danny asked Solomon to at least promise to read through the Gospel of John once. Solomon, because of his friendship to Danny, consented. Solomon said that as he read the Gospel, the words pierced his heart in a way that nothing ever had, not the Quran or even Danny's arguments. 
Solomon read and reread the Gospel of John, and within a relatively short time, he embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Solomon's love for Jesus would eventually cost him his family and his home. His family had formally disowned him, and he is currently exiled from his country. What inspired such commitment to Jesus was Solomon's exposure simply to the Word of God. Read the surahs that invite the Muslim to read the book, the Bible, or to talk to a Christian. Become become skilled at retelling the stories of the Bible accurately. That's a good way to, to witness to a Muslim. Now, another thing to understand, though we don't understand this much, is how in countries where the Bible or Christianity may not be available, is how God is using dreams to reach Muslims. Anybody heard of that? In, in Muslim countries, again, they're closed. Uh, God, God seems to be using that. In fact, about half of all Muslims claim to have had some type of of experience or encounter with dreams. Listen to Mahmud. Mahmud was a 32-year-old Muslim who came to me with questions about the angel. We had never met. He had only heard from a friend that I was an expert on the angel. We found a quiet place, and he began to tell me his story. A month prior, he said he had had a dream. In this dream, he walked alone in a gigantic empty field. This field, he told me, seemed to him to symbolize his life. He felt alone without purpose, true companionship or direction. As he walked through the field, he heard a voice call his name from behind him. As he turned, he saw a man, in his words, dressed in shining white clothing. I could not look on his face because it was bright like the sun. This heavenly man reached into the sash of his robe and pulled out a copy of the angel. This, the man said to Mahmud, calling him by name, will get you out of this field. Mahmud refused as he knew it was Christian literature. He told me then he woke up in a cold sweat, heart beating quickly, and feeling very afraid. He said he felt as if he had rejected a prophet, but he knew the price he would have to pay for following the angel. So he brushed off the experience as only a dream. When he fell asleep the second night, he found himself again in the same field. The man appeared again, again offering Mahmud the angel. Again, Mahmud fearfully refused. The third night, when Mahmud went to sleep, the man was there waiting for him. This and only this, he said to Mahmud, will get you out of this field. Mahmud told me that with trembling hand, he took it from the man. Mahmud then turned to me and said, My friend tells me that you are an expert on the angel. Can you interpret my dream? Here we go again. For the next two hours, I explained the gospel to him. Though he still had questions, he didn't really doubt the answers I was giving him. After all, he had been instructed by a divine messenger to listen. When I explained to him how Jesus had taken his sin on the cross, he said with tears streaming down his face, Allah, the Creator God, dying in my place? How could it be true? Oh, uh, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest. When I had seen that he believed, I asked him if he would like to be baptized. He said yes, and I asked him if he knew what such a commitment might cost him. He paused and said yes. 
This is why it took me over a month to find the courage to come talk with you. But I concluded that the man in that dream must be Jesus Christ. And if he was searching for me and wanted me to follow him, then it would not matter what anybody else could do to me. I would go with Jesus anywhere as long as he goes with me. As Greer mentions, while things of this nature are happening... We shouldn't count on them. As Christians, we, we, we need to get them reading the Bible and we need to be witnessing to them and not just depend on the fact that God might reach them through a dream. Uh, he also mentions praying with Muslims when they share their needs. Pray with them. Uh, pray with them out loud. He said in Muslim countries, people would start showing up at his door. Even groups of children showing up and saying, would you pray? One kid saying, would you pray for my mother? One little boy said to another, you must have this man here come and pray for your mother because God listens to him. He says, pray with your, your Muslim co-worker or friend when they tell you about needs. At different places in the Old Testament, it's pointed out that God listens to his people when they pray. Answered prayer becomes a tremendous testimony to the Muslim. Muslims are very intrigued by the closeness or the intimacy that they perceive that Christians have with God. And again, that's a powerful witness. Now, Muslims who convert to Christianity usually also express that they were recipients of Christian love and fellowship and hospitality. The Ummah, the community, the sense of a community in, in, in Muslim countries is oftentimes surrounded or held together, I should say, by a bond only for a common enemy. That's what so much of their Ummah is built on. Uh, even, even the Ummah, the fellowship in, in, in Muslim families is not very intimate. They're moved by genuine Christian fellowship and love and hospitality and seeing this among Christians. Now what's sad about this is that we are missing an opportunity most Muslim students who come to America to study say that they have never once been befriended by a Christian or invited into a Christian's home. And they say that they would love to have the friendship of even one Christian. J.D. mentions that, that we would do far better in our evangelism if instead of scheduling debates between Christianity and Islam on the university campus, if the Christian teachers and students would simply befriend the Muslim and invite them to our Bible studies, to our homes, and have a very gracious, hospitable, and caring attitude toward them. He also suggests it's much easier to reach Muslims in groups than one-on-one -on -one. because Muslims are very leery of walking away from their Islamic Ummah community and going out on a limb all by themselves if no other Christian is with them.
One, one Islamic missionary that I wrote about, uh, read about, he said that it's easier to group Muslims together and then reach them than to try to reach them one-on-one and then group them. I, I think an excellent point Greer makes in his book here is that in our work and conversations with Muslims, try to draw them to the Bible and to Jesus rather than simply trying to take them away from Islam. Be careful about being being overly critical of their views and convictions. Simply get them in the Word of God and in the Gospels and talking about Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So keep the focus on Christ. And let Christ and let the Holy Spirit do His work. Second thing, more on Muslim beliefs. More on Muslim beliefs. That's number two on your sheet. I didn't give you too many blanks to have to fill in tonight. I wanted you to pay attention. One of the things that makes Islam attractive to many people is its simplicity. Last week we went over the five pillars of Islam and the five core beliefs. Now, folks, I don't want to be overly simplistic, but that is essentially the heart of Islam. If you go back to your notes from last week, the five pillars and the five core beliefs, that's essentially the heart and core of Muslim faith. I mentioned to you that Muslims believe the, uh, the, the angel uh, Gabriel, they call, they call Gabriel Jibril that Jibril, they believe, recited the Quran to Muhammad. Again, the Quran is made up of 114 surahs or chapters as we might think of them. And the, the, the chapters are arranged from the, from the longest to the shortest with the exception of the first brief introductory surah. Now, one thing that many people notice about the Quran, in addition to its somewhat disjointed and disconnected surahs as compared with the Bible, is that at times the Quran seems to contradict itself. In some places, for example, it'll speak of Christians and Jews as people of the book and as the friend of Muslims. For example, another one, page... 41 in, in this book, Surah 585. Nearest among them in love to the believers, Muslims, wilt, wilt thou find those who say we're Christians? Because amongst these are men devoted to learning and men who have renounced the world and they're not arrogant. I sh- shared that with you a moment ago. The Quran will even tell Muslims that if they have any doubts about what they're reading or hearing, they need to go and check it out with Christians, those who have been reading the book from before yours. Again, Surah 10, uh, 94. And then in other places, it commands Muslims to slay the unbelievers, including Christians and Jews, and accuses us of blasphemy. What's their term for blasphemy? Shirk, S-H-I-R-K, shirk. And they believe there is no possibility of forgiveness for shirk. 
Now, why the difference? Go back with me to last week a minute. Why the, why the seeming contradiction in the Quran that sometimes it would seem to tell you to, to um, if, if you were a Muslim, to go and find a Christian, and at other times it tells you to go and kill a Christian? Why the difference? You've got to understand the course of Muhammad's life. At first, in his earlier writings, he saw himself as a reformer of Christianity. He noticed the moral and theological weakness and corruption of the Christians that he traded with, and he believed he was being called to lead the Christians back to truth. But over time, remember what I said last week, Christians and Jews were not listening to Muhammad's teachings because they were different than, than the Scripture. And so then he began to see himself as somebody who must do away with Christians and Jews. That they were hopelessly corrupted and the only thing to do was to wipe them out. And so the later writings of Muhammad have the tone of him being a conqueror, a warrior, and not a reformer. So the earlier writings in Mecca writings more of peace the later writings when he fled mecca because the christians and jews rejected him and he fled to medina he became more of a warrior he conquered the people of medina went back and conquered the people of mecca and the, those later writings are the jihadist writings more of the the violent conqueror kill them kill them all and so you have to understand that when you're, reading the, when you're reading the Quran or trying to understand what they believe and why the Quran seems to contradict itself, you, you've got to understand the difference between the earlier and the later writings. Quite frankly, that's why I believed it was so deceptive about five years ago. You may remember that there was a professor from... UNC Chapel Hill, that all incoming freshmen were going to have to study the earlier writings of Muhammad together in the Quran because this professor was going to help them understand that Islam is a religion of peace. Well, what's deceptive about that? You've also got to study the later writings. Okay? Now, again, while Muslims respect those portions of the Old and New Testament I mentioned earlier, they, they believe the Quran supersedes them all, and so it's the only authoritative book for them. Added to the Quran, they also put great confidence in the Hadith, which are the traditions and stories others recorded from Muhammad's life. And so when details over Muhammad's life are rather slim in the Quran, they'll use the Hadith to fill in some of the gaps. Now, while the Hadith is not regarded as the infallible words of God, they do consider it authoritative. Now, Muslims believe that for those who follow Islam faithfully, a luxurious paradise awaits. Three rivers run through it, one of pure milk, one of pure water, and one of whiskey, which is strictly forbidden on earth. 
But in heaven, you can drink whiskey by the gallons and never become drunk. Now, for faithful men, what awaits faithful men? Seventy eternal virgins. J.D. says he could never get a straight answer on just what an eternal virgin is. <laughs> he was told in heaven men can carry that, that men can marry multiple women and hide them from one another in separate quarters so that they don't know that the other wives exist. <laughs> it's that whiskey again. Huh? He said he could also never get a straight answer as to what faithful Muslim women receive in paradise. Truth is, Muhammad didn't speak much about women. He did, he did say, however, that many more women than men go to hell. Now, they believe that in hell, the most horrendous tortures await the occupants. So it's not just a place of torment, general torment and separation from God, but it's a place where there are specific tortures carried out on you. And so if you were a thief on earth, your hand might be cut off over and over and over and over again and you would suffer that. If you were a liar on earth, your tongue would be cut out over and over and over again, and you would suffer the agony of that. If you were an adulterer, well, you get the point. <laughs> Many Muslims believe that each person walks a tightrope over hell on their way to eternity in paradise. And you have to carry all of your bad on your shoulders. And the more bad you have done, the more likely it is that you'll topple into hell. Many also believe that all people must go to hell for at least a short period of time to suffer for what they did before they are allowed to go on to paradise. The more sins that need purging, the longer you'll be there in hell before you get to go to paradise. Now, the main ones who certainly never will get out of hell are those who have done what? I mentioned it a moment ago. Committed shirk, blasphemy. They believe Christians have committed shirk by saying that God has a son. Now, this is another reason that when you do begin to reach out and pray and study the Bible with the Muslim, you've you got to be careful about up front with them on the front end praying in Jesus' name. Now, we know that our prayers are in Jesus' name. We only can go to God through Christ. But initially, it's in your initial attempts to witness to a Muslim, they, they might just shut you down immediately because they will believe you've committed shirk, you've committed blasphemy. And so maybe that's an understanding you have to develop with them later. Muslims are very works-oriented. Take the prayers five times a day. Remember it, the five pillars of Islam, the prayers five times a day? 
The prayers are an important way to the Muslim as a way of earning merit and removing sin. A prayer said in a mosque is worth 25 times more than a prayer said at home or in the market. The Hadith says that if a Muslim goes to the mosque with the sole intention of saying a prayer, every step he takes towards the mosque is translated as one additional reward in heaven and one sin taken off of his account. Now, during the prayers, the recitation of the Quran to Allah is the basic thing that they're doing in their prayers, showing submission to Allah. The prayers will be accompanied by different postures. The, uh, the Muslim, you may have seen, seen this at some point, will, will take his hands, and, and, and when he gets in the mosque or in his prayer time, he'll take his hands and cup them behind his ears. What's he saying? He wants to hear from Allah in the Quran. And then he'll and then he'll take his hands and he'll he'll move it and do like this towards his gut. What's he saying? He wants to take everything in the Quran and everything Allah says uh, into his heart. And he'll bow with his head low to the ground. Showing what? Submission to Allah. Now, they go through an extensive washing process. The, the uh, I hope I'm saying this right. The wudu. W-U-D-U. By the way, let me take this opportunity. I'm, I'm looking at this screen. I hope you know that the backdrop that I have used, I'm using it in a different way. A Muslim would look at this climbing the ladder, and, and they, they'd look at this as a good thing. Remember what I said last week about Muhammad? On the Temple Mount, they believe on the Temple Mount where the, where the uh, Dome of the Rock is built, that, that, that the angel carried Muhammad up a ladder to the seventh heaven. So that picture to them is, is, would be good. But I'm using it in a negative way as we're going through what we're going through right now. All the, it's all the self-effort that you've got to do. Okay? Again, the, the washing process, the, the what do that precedes the prayers. They will wash their hands up to their wrist three times. They will rinse their mouths out three times. They will sniff water into and through the nostrils three times. And they'll thoroughly wash their face from ear to ear and forehead to chin. They'll pass a wet hand over their head and they'll wash the feet up to the ankles three times, the right first, then the left. If they do anything to contact any type of defilement, before they reach their time of prayer, they've got to start all over again. Now, defilement would be touching a non-Muslim, touching around one's private areas, using the bathroom, even passing gas. 
And that's why after the cleansing process, they may cross their legs, especially if they're resting before their prayer time because they would believe if you're crossing your legs, you wouldn't be able to pass gas and have defiled yourself and have to start over again. Now, during Ramadan, as I mentioned last week, they, they fast from the first light of day until the last. They can't even drink water, even in a desert climate. But at night... During the night hours, they have a lavish feast. In fact, it is commonly reported that during the month of Ramadan, food consumption in Islamic countries actually increases. Now, if you ever live or visit a Muslim area during Ramadan, you are at least expected, even if you don't, of course, observe Ramadan, you are at least expected during the daylight hours, if you're in the presence of a Muslim, to refrain from eating or drinking in their presence. Now the Hajj, H-A-J-J. What's the Hajj? Trip to Mecca. To be taken at least once in your lifetime counts the same amount of merit as at least... 50,000 prayers said in a mosque, maybe up to 100,000 prayers said in a mosque. And remember, prayers in a mosque count for more than prayers at home. And so the Hodge counts 50 to 100,000 times that. If you've ever seen the hundreds of thousands of Muslims standing in the square around the Kaaba, have you seen that? The Kaaba, the black stone where they believe that Abraham sacrificed Isaac, true or false? No, where they believe Abraham sacrificed Ishmael, the Kaaba. Have you ever seen the, just the multitude? It's estimated that every year somewhere around 2 million Muslims will make that journey to Mecca. And they're all standing around the Kaaba, and they'll all be the same. There'll be no distinction. They'll all have on white or something. There'll be no distinction because they want it to be that, that there's no distinction among the Muslims of the world. And, and you know what they're hoping for? They're hoping. Now, folks, tell me if this doesn't tell you that they are crying out for a mediator. They are hoping that among all, if there's two million of them there annually is estimated, they're hoping that there will be one in the crowd, one in the crowd, who is righteous enough and worthy enough that Allah will hear his or her prayers on behalf of all Muslims and forgive them. It's reported that many Muslims come back from the Hajj deeply disappointed and disillusioned. It didn't do for them what they were expecting it to do. Folks, I think it shows us that works righteousness can't bring anybody lasting peace. Only Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can offer lasting peace. Amen? Misconceptions, how are we doing on time? I still got a lot of material. Lots, lots, lots. Misconceptions. Uh, 
Muslims believe that Christians worship three gods. And this is extremely offensive to them. Now, by the way, this false belief about the Trinity ought to be offensive to a Christian as well. And throughout church history, any belief that we worship three gods has been soundly rejected. Also, any thought that God morphs himself, that sometimes he's the father, sometimes he's the son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit, that's also been soundly rejected by Christians as being a heretical view of the Trinity. We believe God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct personalities of the one Godhead, not three separate gods. Now, the Muslim believes that when you and I talk about the Trinity and Jesus being God's Son, remember, they, they do believe Jesus to be a prophet. But when we talk about him being God's Son, they are thinking that what we're saying, what we're communicating is that God the Father somehow or another came down here and literally had sex with Mary and that Jesus is the love child offspring between God and Mary. Do Christians believe that? No. No. Remember, the Bible teaches that God is spirit and thus bodily urges and actions cannot be ascribed to him. But I just want you to understand what the Muslim perceives that we are saying. Another misconception Muslims have is that Westerners are all Christians. Our TV, including things like MTV and other channels that carry risque stuff has made its way into their market. When they see women in a Western television show mostly naked or they see a music video from MTV or some other similar channel, they believe that that is how Christians behave. And some do, unfortunately, yes. J.D. said he was approached by a Muslim college student who asked him to throw her a Christian birthday party. He said, what do you mean throw you a Christian birthday party? She said, I want the people dancing around, I want the people dancing around naked and all the drinking and smoking and dancing like I see on your TV channels. She thought that was a Christian birthday party. They also don't understand the separation of church and state, and so they would ask him why the church was bombing Iraq. Again, for, for Islam, it's a total way of life. Islamic law dictates everything about your everyday life, even in the governmental or the state sense. Uh, you may have to make it very clear to a Muslim that to be an American does not automatically make you a Christian. Help them understand that. You may have to explain that even being in the church does not make you a Christian. And that many who claim to be Christians are not Christians. 
You may have to explain also that everything your nation does or everything your government does is not the church acting. They may understand that any war in a Muslim country carried on by a Western nation is an attempt by that nation to throw out Islam and impose Christianity on that nation. Greer suggests that instead of getting into all the deep weeds on this, however, you simply try to get them to understand that it's not the church acting. The church is not a political machine. Yes, one's Christianity ought to affect one's political views, but the church is not the government. They're not one and the same. Now, Muslims are generally not, not exposed, even in their schools, to their own history of violence. Many of them have never heard or never been educated about the Jewish Holocaust, for example. They've not been taught that. They're taught that the only wars Muhammad ever engaged in were only defensive wars. Muslims are very leery of translations of the Bible just as they're leery of translations of the Quran. Even though many of them don't know Arabic, they will memorize surahs in Arabic. School children will memorize in Arabic the Quran from cover to cover, even if they don't know Arabic. They'll recite it, even if they have no idea what they're saying. J.D. Greer said he found it helpful in his home to have verses from the Bible posted on his walls in Hebrew and Greek. Now, he's a Ph.D. He knows Hebrew, Hebrew and Greek. Uh, if you don't, he said, don't worry. They still respect that you have the Bible in Hebrew or Greek. They respect the original languages. A misconception on our side of the equation is that Christians think that all Muslims are terrorists. Now, it's certainly true that violence in the name of God is an undeniable part of Islamic history and doctrine and that Muhammad himself was a warrior. But that said, most Muslims that you and I encounter in the West are not violent people. Many of them, in fact, are embarrassed by the reputation of Muslims worldwide, while at the same time they might think that they've been depicted somewhat unfairly. You'll also find opinions among them, even the peaceable ones, that they don't believe any attacks on America or the West were completely unprovoked. Now Greer, of course, as he says in his book, is not condoning any of this. He's simply saying, don't expect even the peaceable ones who are ashamed of the terrorist to view everything on the world scene exactly like you and I might. Now, here's a, dich a dichotomy that's hard to dismiss. Most are peace-loving and even admire and desire the freedoms that we have in the West. And you and I have no reason to fear the majority of them. They... they probably make very kind and respectful neighbors to your students. 
In fact, he points out that while traveling and living in Muslim areas, he found them to be more hospitable and welcoming into their homes than you and I tend to be with just foreigners in general because there's that hospitality built in, into that Arab culture. And yet at the same time, the dichotomy is that while they may be opposed to the violence, they may be, a, even the peaceful ones might be a bit just dismissive of it. Uh, they don't participate in it, they don't condone it, and yet they have just come to accept it as a way of life in their culture. Now, I'm going to detour here for a moment. Norman Geisler and Abdul Salib also write about this subject in their book. Again, they would be in agreement with Greer's points that the majority of Muslims are peace-loving and, and kind people. They also point out, though, that built into the core of Islam through the Quran and the examples of Muhammad, there are indeed justifications for violence that the radical jihadists are using. Uh, they also bring up that sometimes we've heard a very unfair comparison made in the media that there's not much difference between the Islamic terrorists and members of the KKK associating themselves with Christianity and the Bible. And as Geisler points out, that is a very false argument. The KKK member does what he does in spite of and in betrayal to the explicit teachings and example of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the Islamic jihadist is doing what he's doing in response to some of the commands in the Quran and also imitating their prophet as a role model. Now also keep in mind that whereas in the Old Testament Israel was told to go in and commit violence as they were entering the promised land, that was for a specific time and place and purpose. On the contrary, the surahs that the jihadists appeal to in carrying out their violence are very open-ended for all times and circumstances. Another important distinction has to do with our Old Testament and New Testament. Any Christian is supposed to keep reading the storyline until he comes to what? Until he comes to the New Testament. Right? And there he reads about Jesus who says, Love even your enemies and do good to them and pray for them. On the other hand, the Muslim is also to put greater weight on the later writings than the earlier writings. The problem here is the later writings are where the verses promoting violence are. As I mentioned to you in session one, the earlier writings came from Muhammad's earlier days in Mecca before the people, including Christians and Jews, drove him out. So the earlier writings were more peaceable. However, once being driven out of Mecca and fleeing to Medina, he became more of a warrior and conqueror, as I mentioned a moment ago. And so the later writings are where you find the aspects of violence. And so what I'm saying is that even if the Old Testament verses on violence could be, even if you could make them apply to all peoples in all times, which you can't, Still, you're to keep reading and come to the New Testament. The, two, the New Testament 
once and for all would take the violence out of your religion. For the Muslim, it's the opposite. They're to keep reading, come to the later writings where the violent aspects are. Now, to the above points that that we would make, some Muslims would offer a couple of objections. The first objection they would offer would sound much like us defending Joshua in the book of Joshua. They would say that the violence in the later writings was only intended for the beginning of Islam when Muhammad was facing such opposition. But the problem in that this is that whereas the Bible sets a historical context and makes it obvious that the violence was indeed for a specific time and place, the Quran offers no such clarification. A second objection they'll offer is that Islam is a religion of peace and war is only for self-defense or in cases of oppression. But the problem here is they don't offer the same kind of definition of self-defense or oppression that you and I would. For example, they would argue that if a nation's leader or leaders does not recognize the rule of Islam, then by their definition, that nation is an oppressor. They would also argue because of the way American values are pumped through the media all over the world and our values go into other cultures, then we are to be fought because it is in their self-defense to fight us. And so as Geisler points out, the radical Muslims will find just about any justification out there for calling their enemies oppressors that need to be destroyed. I'm not going to finish tonight. I'm a little over halfway done. But I do want to point out something. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about talk more in two weeks about reaching Muslims. But let's talk tonight about Islam and women. Maybe wrap it up after this. Islam and women, that would be number four. Westerners often think of the oppressed Muslim woman and how she must be longing to be free of her state of oppression. She may have to walk six feet behind her husband. She she might have to stare constantly downward as she's out in public so as not to make any eye contact with the male. She may have to live at the back of her house. She may in fact seldom see the light of day. She may not be allowed to be educated And she is subject to any of the sexual whims of her husband. And so many Westerners think Muslim women must be unhappy and bitter and longing to leave their Muslim husband and Muslim lands. Is that a correct assumption? No. What does the Quran and Hadith have to say about women? There's no denying discrimination. The Hadith says that 80% of all people who go to hell are women. 
in explaining why the witness of a woman is equal to only half that of a man in court, the Hadith says it is because of the deficiency in a woman's brain. The Quran instructs Muslim men to warn their wives twice about misconduct, showing them the whips on the walls on the wall before taking the whips down and using them. Muslim men can marry up to four women, although contrary to belief, it's not usually done, but they can marry up to four women, and they can divorce any of them simply by saying, I divorce you three times, repeating that three times. Women, on the other hand, can't do that because their emotions are too fickle. The Quran says that Muslim wives are like a field to be plowed. In other words, women are sexual objects, which is why they must spend most of their time hidden away in their own homes and have no interaction with men and be fully covered the way they are if they do go out. In some Islamic nations, there, there are localized practices like female circumcision, religiously approved prostitution and double standards for punishing adultery. A woman can and will be put to death while very little is done to the man. Now again, all of this would lead to the conclusion that Muslim marriages are unhappy and that Muslim women are unhappy. But again, you wouldn't find this. While there's no concept of dating or romance as in a Western culture, many at least give the appearance of being happy. In fact, Muslim women can be some of the strongest defenders of Islam. Western Muslim women may call for reforms within Islam, but very seldom will Western Islamic women call for an end to Islam itself. The point is, if you think you're going to get an automatic convert to Christianity from a Muslim woman, think again. But some Christian missionaries to Muslim countries do report that over time, Muslim women are very intrigued by the freedom and the dignity and the liberty that they are promised in Christ. And that eventually appeals to many of them. Now, folks, I've got all kinds of stuff to go over about their concept of salvation. Okay? And, and you're going you're gonna to be amazed at how, well, hopefully some of the things, things I've already said about how much a prayer in a mosque counts. You're going to be amazed at how works-oriented it is. And then I also want to talk to you about, so how can we wrap all this together and how can we actually witness to a Muslim? It's 720. I guess that's going to have to wait until, what will it be, February 14th? And, and I, I, I really wanted to finish up tonight, but I just, I've tried to pack so much in. Uh, I hope you've been able to keep up. Do what? 
Yeah, but really, the number five, we're going to talk, if you want to go ahead and fill in number five, we're going to talk about the Muslim and salvation and what it is that they believe. And then number six is reaching Muslims. Reaching Muslims. Now, folks, I hope you don't come to the first two sessions and miss the next session because what a shame it would be if we find out about what they believe and what they think about us, and then we don't wrap it up by talking about and understanding how we can be a witness to them. Can I blow you away for a minute? Can I blow your mind for a minute? When you talk to an American, and let's, let's face it, all of us have been here. All of us have been here. When you think about talking to a Muslim, most of us think about, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to do that. Do you realize that you and the Muslim, and I, I found this to be true with the young Muslim man, do you realize that your Muslim neighbor, there's some things about the, the concept of the sovereignty of God and all that we share a common framework with. Do you realize they are more ready to talk to you about religious matters probably than your pagan, unbelieving neighbor. Because you might have a neighbor, I don't have time for God. I don't have time for church. I don't have time for Christianity. Talk to you about that. But in a typical Muslim, you're going to find somebody who is ready to engage you in conversation about religion. Because remember, religion covers all of their life. And so contrary to what you believe, you're probably going to find them more ready to talk to you initially than you might your typical neighbor who is unchurched and unsaved. And that's a misconception we have. Okay. Let's close. Father, help us to understand the, these peoples from around the globe that are moving to us. You're bringing the mission field to us. And many of them are Islamic. And because of the things we see in the news and read about, we tend to be afraid of all of them. Lord, help us not to be guilty of that misconception. Many of them are hungering for eternal life. They have no assurance of salvation whatsoever. Muhammad himself commented to some of his co-laborers in war that even he himself had no assurance that he was going to go to paradise. Built into their religious framework is a total lack of assurance that they will ever do enough good to be accepted. Lord, what an opportunity we have to talk to them about the gospel. 
Lord, help us to build bridges and friendships as we have opportunity. As they come to our classrooms and our neighborhoods. Lord, help them to find a Christian Uma, a Christian community. And use even that to draw them to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.